Active Motiv Podcast Episode 2 Der Nukleosom Welcome to the second episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motiv. My name is Stefan and I am part of the technical support team of Active Motiv. The subject of this episode is the nucleosome, which is the building block of chromatin. Our special guests in this episode are Ada and Don Ollins from the University of New England. I am happy to sit down now during the EMBO conference, the nucleosome from atoms to genomes with Ada and Don Ollins and talk about their scientific career and also current and future trends in the chromatin field. Ada and Don, thank you for joining me today. Please let me quickly introduce you both to our audience. Uh, you two first met at the Albert Einstein College, College of Medicine in uh, New York City in 1960. You got married then in 61. Either you received your PhD from the New York University College of Medicine in 65. And Don, you received your PhD from the Rockefeller University in 64. Then you did your postdocs together at Dartmouth Medical School. And you both moved to Oak Ridge in 1967 where Don was appointed assistant professor at the University of Tennessee, Oak Ridge Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences. And Ada was eventually appointed research assistant professor in 72 at UTBMS. And then in 74, you published a groundbreaking paper in science on the ferrical chromatin units, new, bo new bodies as you call them, um, also known as the nucleosome. So my first question would be, why did you both become attracted and fascinated by chromatin research? and not any other topic at that time. So what did bring you to this field? I think it would take us very long to eliminate all the things <laughs> we didn't do. <laughs> so I'd rather say what we enjoyed about uh, yeah, chromatin sure. structure and uh, the nucleus has always been fascinating to us and it's so central to all biology uh, that um, we wanted to work with that. Uh, I would add that We actually felt as though there was a paucity of research in this area uh, that um, at the time the the field was really dominated by people who were analyzing the histones. And uh, we remember going to one Gordon conference, an early Gordon conference, where the hottest topic of the entire conference was, how shall we name the histones? And there was actually a vote on what we should name the, what we, how we should name the, the histones. So I think we felt as though it was an area that was ripe for good understanding. So right before it took off, really? And I, I do believe we felt that way. Okay, what uh, would you have done if not science? So were, were there any other interests that you would have had or <laughs> did you have a choice at all? Or was it always, uh, like, did you have always have an interest in nature and that you would always go in, in this direction? Well, I'll speak for myself. I started interest in biology in, in high school and it really clicked on me and particularly evolution for me was the most astounding concept that I could ever grasp. And then and cell biology, two great concepts of the 19th century. So I, I really felt that I was doomed to go into research. 
What about uh, you, Aida? Uh, I started out as a chemistry major, and then I guess I thought the most interesting molecules were biological molecules. So I chose that uh, for my graduate studies. But, uh, okay, then, uh, since we're here in Heidelberg now, I want to... Uh, come to Heidelberg now. Um, in 79, your first extended stay at the German Cancer Research Center in Heidelberg was supported by a Humboldt Senior Scientist Award to Dawn and a Visiting Scientist Award from the DKFZ to Ada. And you moved to Germany together. Um, how long did you stay here then at your first day? We were here for a year at that time and we came with our children at in 1979. So it was limited to the school year, probably. It started out, yes, it was the school year. The, the end of our stay was the wonderful International Congress of Cell Biology, which Werner Franke organized in Berlin. Oh, I see. And um, at that meeting, uh, Don and Herbert Spring or, uh, organized a, a display of antique microscopes. Uh, which came out with, and they came out with a little publication about it, and many of our own collection of microscopes were in Berlin for that congress. Um, we should say, we want to acknowledge the generosity of Werner Franke, uh, who we had met earlier, I believe, maybe at a Gordon conference, but we, we hit it off very well, and He was very interested in the concept of the nucleosome, later to be called the nucleosome. Um, and he, he really had a, he built up an excellent group of people interested in nuclear architecture in his group. Uh, and we were just delighted to come over and spend a year and working with many people in his group. And he was our host as a Humboldt uh, awardee, as Don being the Humboldt awardee. So do you still know some German? <laughs> Or did you... <laughs> still is a good question. Yeah. <laughs> Look, you, you should know that Ada's uh, first language really is German. And oh. so... I still know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I... I never really learned very much German, much to my embarrassment and my constant ribbing by many friends of mine. Oh, you've been into Germany so many years and you still don't speak fluent German. Well, hmm. there we are. So you liked it so much that you came back to Heidelberg in 1997. Um, was this then where your long-lasting relationships with the DKFZ came then really into place? Or... Was it just a continuation of the things you built up uh, earlier? Or how did well, you do It wasn't really a continuation. I think um, we were very excited by publication of Peter Lichter and Thomas Kremer and Christoph Kremer on chromosome territories. And we felt that that would be a very exciting lab to be in. And, and it turned out, of course, to be very exciting and um, to be in Peter Lichter's lab was a very special experience. His hospitality was incredible, and of course, we're still friends today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I th I think one of the things in the in the laboratories that we've worked at over the years here at the DKFC 
is that m these laboratories, many of them have veered away from our interests uh, into areas where clearly and rightly so they had deep interests like Werner Franke, his nuclear architecture people basically left the group as he emphasized much more intermediate filaments. And um, Peter Lichter had a very good group on nuclear architecture when we came. And gradually, he that um, disappeared as he put much greater emphasis on cancer genomes. And we so we went into those. We we have always stayed pretty much with nuclear architecture. So I want to um, just um, go a little bit uh, further. So you both retired from full professorship at the UTBMS in '98, uh, and then from 2002 to 2008 you were visiting scholars at Bowling College in Maine, in uh, William Steinhardt's lab. And when you retired, you also joined the faculty at the University of New England, where you are research professors. And despite the fact that you are retired, you still do science and also publish regularly. So how do you manage this? Do you still have PhD students doing the work or how did, do you do this then? We don't take students anymore and we don't take, we don't take postdoctorals anymore. Because and we don't have technicians. Anymore. Yeah, we don't have technicians <laughs> anymore. Uh, um, basically, we do most of our work by collaboration, uh, and we have wonderful collaborators. Uh, and the other thing we have done is, as we've gotten older, we uh, tend to work with we we work with young scientists who are very often at the early parts in their career. That has two advantages, one, three advantages. One is we have a lot to learn from them. Secondly, we have a lot of experience in the nuclear structure field that we can convey to them. And thirdly, they can get grant money, whereas we can't. So we're often listed as just a small line item on other people's grants. But, uh, and these are people that we collaborate with, and it's been very productive, for, I think, everyone. I, I would like to add to that that we really like working in the lab. There's part, part of the pleasure of being a scientist is doing actually the manual manipulations, especially in microscopy. Uh, th this is a great pleasure that we're not, we don't want to give up. I see. So you still come to Heidelberg every year. So is this also where you get some of your data from? Definitely. Sure. Oh, definitely. We we've done experiments here and, and obtained data here that we could never afford to do elsewhere, uh, like uh, DNA sequencing and and uh, RNA sequencing or um, RNA seq. Um, We could never afford that, but it's been possible to put that as part of the programs and emphasis that occur at the DKFC. And uh, then we have tons of data that we can analyze as a consequence. And we also use instrument, other kinds of instrumentation at the DKFC, electron microscopes and things like that, which we do not have in Maine. So this is so, also a great resource for you. When we left... Um, Oak Ridge, uh, we had to leave our, 
electron microscope. And oh, what a shame. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can be sure. We would have gladly installed it in our apartment in Maine if we could. So um, your research on private lives uh, have always been connected between both continents, North America and Europe. Uh, do you see much of a difference in doing science between the US and Europe, particularly Germany, as you have visited here many times? You can answer. Okay. <laughs> we, we have seen, well, science here in Germany is fabulous. Uh, there's no issue on that. What's really interesting is over the years that we've been coming, we've seen interesting changes take place, particularly in the relationships between students and the senior people. Uh, we, like we remember when we would give our talks the first years we came in the 70s, late 70s, um, after we'd finish a talk, the only people that asked the questions were the professors. The students were absolutely quiet. It's turned around completely. I, this, I think the professors can't even get their questions in edgewise <laughs> anymore. And that, I think, is absolutely wonderful. Because you think the students want to learn more or do they have the courage not to ask the questions? I think both are true. They want to learn more and they now have the courage. And it's I think there's a real change in the hierarchical <clears throat> system. This is a very fundamental new change. I mean, uh, in, in um, 1979, when I said due to Professor Franke, he nearly fell off his chair. And uh, today, of course, you say due to people you don't even know. So society has really changed quite dramatically. I see. Talking about change, um, did you notice any difference in the publication problem? process uh, from submitting your first manuscript to now is it now harder to publish or is it was it harder in those days oh that's such a difficult question to answer i mean we've had um we've had difficult times to publish early in our career and easy times to publish i i, I think an example yeah. of that is um Chris Woodcock not being able to publish his observation of uh, nucleosomes. Uh, it, it's really an outrageous situation. Nature looked at his paper and said this should never be published because we would have to rewrite textbooks. So it was hard then, it's hard today. I think it depends. It's very random who reviews your papers. I, I wouldn't. I mean, it's, so it's more hard. complicated today. You have to do it all Uh, on the computer and technologically. Those are trivial kinds of problems compared to the review system. Uh, I do think that one of the best, one of the strong relationships that we as authors could and should have is with the editors who are managing our manuscripts. They, I'm sure that many of them do, but I think they should look at the criticisms by the reviewers and ask, is this a realist? I'm sure they do. Uh, is this a realistic criticism or is this a criticism that's going to require an extra year of work? Um, uh, because I think that Uh, this kind of personal judgment and knowledge of the way the field is going is something that good editors should, and uh, we've experienced this in our career. So it's a function also of the way the um, 
the the journal is managed, I'd say. May I add up to this? Um, do you think this is due to science getting more complicated nowadays that nobody can really go into those different fields anymore? Or Are you asking because it's difficult to get reviewers who are competent to review a paper? Or, is I mean, that I your mean, question? It's, it's, so, it's so difficult and it's so narrow that Every research is so so narrow and not like an editor could not like get an overview of all those different questions that you would have. I do think that's a factor, but then we had other kinds of uh, personal vendettas years ago that still exist. But it's interesting, uh, in, in bioinformatics, we just recently published a paper in, in Nucleus where we did um, RNA-seq analysis. And we have a wonderful bioinformatician who did all of the analysis for us. And the reviewer came back and criticized his method of doing this. And we as authors, you know, had to sit back and watch what I would call bioinformatic wars taking place. Uh, people who were arguing, no, this is the best method, this is the best method. We could not judge it. It's our own data, and we couldn't even judge which is the best method. But our guy won. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, that's very nice. So today we hear a lot about the doom and gloom in science in the, in the recent years. So what is your advice to young scientists and trainees today how to, to approach the science, how to approach the PhD? I'm not sure I know what you mean by doom and gloom because it seems to me on one side, science is blossoming. I mean, there's never been more people doing science and there's never been a period where science has been more productive. So I don't know that, I don't know exactly what you mean by doom and so gloom. My, my question would be, what, what would be your advice if you start your PhD now? What to to focus on how to to approach it don't do it unless you really want to <laughs> <laughs> well I, i i think another important thing science has changed in the years that we've been in science much more is done by collaboration the papers that you see have more authors on them i think that the younger people have to begin to network earlier and form good relationships with people, just like uh, Ad and I have basically networked from the very beginning. And, and, you know, we can criticize each other and the work that's going on. I think they you have to get that kind of relationship with a good group of people. And uh, maybe ultimately you work with some of these people. And this is where we're here at the AMBO conference. <laughs> I hope so, yeah. Yeah, there are wonderful people in the field now. So now uh, coming more to your science and your contributions to the field, um, your more recent work includes the term epichromatin, which you describe in a 2011 paper titled An Epichromatin Epitope. How would you describe the concept of, of epichromatin real quick to the audience? I mean in the… Real quick, it's the well, surface of chromatin. Yeah. You know, you know it's something that everyone's known about in a way, because we know the interphase nucleus and the mitotic chromosome has a surface. But um, it suddenly, we started working with antibodies that shined up that surface. 
shown up that surface. And um, so that really focused our thinking on it. Maybe there's something unique about that surface, and that's really what we're studying now, we're hoping. And I think when we saw this um, antibody staining just the surface on the nucleus, it, it was the realization that this is maybe an interesting tool to use to explore chromatin structures. So um, I don't know that the antibody itself is uh, doing something super special, but it's a really good tool to separate a part of the nucleus and allow us to study it. So I, I do, because I know you're going to ask another question <laughs> later, but I do have to apologize to use the, the prefix epa. Epichromatin and epigenetics are not one in the same. Although the meaning, the use of the prefix, we used epichromatin like you would epidermis, uh, the skin of, in a way, uh, the surface. And of course, in epigenetics, you mean um, greater than, larger, built on top, not exactly the gen uh, beyond the genetics. So uh, it's just one of the quirks of language. But yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> does it then, in your in your eyes, reflect the surface of the chromatin fiber, or more like the surface of a bigger structure? Then, or how would you? How are you differentiating between a chromatin fiber and chromatin? I mean, there are there may, might be more big as a, or bigger heterochromatic complexes or. or I mean the the whole chromatin as in the nucleus. Well, I we think, and our work has been moving in this direction, that every nucleosome has this epitope. Okay. 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 Uh, so in in that sense, um, it's whatever structure. We we think that what happens is that um, internally these epitopes are. All there. often hidden. They're, they're, we think there's more to this than that than what I just said. Yeah. And whereas on the surface the epitopes are more exposed. Okay, but that so that it isn't particularly related to the type of chromatin higher order structure. It's only whether or not the epitopes are exposed or hidden. I mean that's yeah. but, th but there's more than that we could describe if so so Do you think that there might be a functional, functional or physiological function for this epitope? How would you describe this? Not so much for the epitope, although that may be, but for more what it's telling us about the chromatin. And if the epitope is exposed, it's telling us maybe that that region of chromatin is exposed. And then it might depend, it might play a different role. For example, what we're thinking a lot about today, and many people are, is post-mitotic nuclear envelope reformation. How can this occur and be so, so accurate? Um, we work, for many years now, we've worked with a cell line called HL60S4, it's just a version of HL60, which you can grow as undifferentiated cells in culture year after year after year. Yet whenever you add retinoic acid to it 
or four ball ester to it, it differentiates. Okay, so it hasn't lost the potential to differentiate. Uh, same with same with stem cells that you grow in culture. So we w this means, and also we have published on the composition of chromatin in these cells, and we find that it's always a very small fraction of the genome that's in epichromatin. So we think that and there's the same some fraction. Well, and the yeah, same, same fraction, fraction yeah. yeah, in this cell type. So we think that, oh, sorry. <laughs> we think that um, that it's part of possibly the mechanism of what we now in the field call cellular memory. I just wanted to say that the epichromatin in three different cell states of the cell same cell line includes the same sequences. So it's this very small, maybe 4% fraction of the total DNA sequence that is on the surface. So that makes us believe that it's really something quite important and special. So what kind of future efforts do you see that need to be addressed now in this, in this field? What are you up to doing or what are you thinking of doing? Well... <laughs> Um, it's not so easy. <laughs> yeah, if I if I could answer the question, I wouldn't be sitting here. We'd be doing <laughs> it. <laughs> um, uh, well, we want to know. Unfortunately, it's um, well. We want to know exactly what the amino acid residues are that are present in the what we call the epichromatin epitope. Right now, we believe it includes the acidic patch on the nucleosome. Uh, we're working. It would be nice if we could make reagents that mimic what the antibodies see, and then put labels in those, and and maybe work out faster ways of isolating epichromatin from different cell types, different tissues, etc. That would be nice if we could do that. Um, One of the things is that we know that every nucleosome uh, can react with the antibody if, when we isolate nucleosomes, but there seems to be some special organization in 3D on the surface of the uh, nucleus or chromosomes. And it would be really nice to be able to say what is the relationship of one nucleosome to the adjacent nucleosome and how does that affect the uh Uh, avidity to the antibody and make it react more strongly on the surface than interior. So th this kind of 3D architecture is something we've always been very interested in. And I think today's techniques in cryo-electron microscopy are going to be very interesting in helping us solve that problem. Okay. I don't know if we answer you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's if great. We, if we... Don't answer a question. You can yeah, yeah, I push us. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to move away now a little bit from the epichromatin and more to the recent understanding of the role of epigenetics in different diseases, uh, cancer, and also in development. And those fields have been growing rapidly. Um, what among the different flavors of chromatin research would be the most interesting and promising field, in your opinion, now to look out for? So if you... 
Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think in part um, it's the techniques that will push our directions uh, as um, mass spec becomes available to understanding epigenetic modifications on a very high resolution scale. That will yield a whole volume of data that will require new analysis and will open many new doors. I have no idea, of course, where it's going to go. Uh, yes, just to continue on with what Ada was saying, you have to understand that we regard ourselves really as microscopist cell biologists. And um, in general, those uh, microscopy, although there's there are new kinds of microscopy now, is not um, a high data acquisition method. It's excellent for looking at particular parts of cells and nuclei, but especially if you think you know what functions are taking place there. So I think that we will continue, we, I'm speaking of the entire field, will continue to use antibodies to various uh, epigenetic modifications and try and ask specific question, does, well, let's say, does epichromatin have those uh, reactivities there, for example, whereas mass spec has the potential to give us tons and tons of data so that we can sift through it and speak more statistically in, in bioinformatics how uh, how the regions of chromatin are drifting one way or another based upon uh, their signatures from the epigenetic modifications. So you think the bold direction of the field is always driven by methods that are available, that new methods that get discovered and maybe also the bioinformaticians that change or the bioinformatics that change. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. We're totally dependent on that. An example of this is DNA sequencing. When people started doing that, we thought it was crazy because how could you handle that much data? But the technology today is so readily available that we can handle sequences and we can make sense out of that and we can understand individual genes. So that that's an example of the technology really pushing a field in a particular direction obviously like everyone in the field now we're dependent on these methods but we're still microscopists <laughs> <laughs> and we want to see it in a cell and we want to see where it is in the nucleus um you know because uh nature has had so many eons for evolution to shape every aspect of life, including nuclei and chromosome structures. Uh, and so we want to find out what's, what's special about the regions that have been conserved in evolution. And of course, we could tell you lots of regions that are of interest, but that's another time. So I have uh, arrived at the last of my questions. So if there is anything you still want to add or I missed, uh, you feel free to to say it now. But if not, well, I I would like to add that uh, science is really a very fun uh, occupation, and if you enjoy doing it, 
I think that's a wonderful opportunity, and I encourage anyone um, who wants to do it to pursue it. Sometimes it's hard, sometimes not, but it's worth doing. Uh, can I add that we've been absolutely encouraged at the meetings we've gone to, <clears throat> the quality and the number of young people who have come into this area. It's, it's a total renaissance. And uh, I would have to, I want to echo Ada's um, view. Maintaining the highest standards are absolutely paramount. Truthfulness, honesty with yourself, honesty with your colleagues, and the ability to accept being wrong. Um, in fact, I think, some, I'm a great believer that when you do experiments, you should immediately interpret them, come up with a hypothesis, and then go around when you do your next experiment, it, it, when it turns out that it's complete, your hypothesis is completely wrong, that your guess was completely off the mark, that's when you get stimulated. Because that's when you say, okay, let's come up with another view. And that's when you start thinking differently. And so I would encourage the young students to do that. So thank you very much for this last statement. And thank you very much for you two to have time to sit down here together. And um, let me ask you some questions. Thank you very much for being part of the show. Okay. Glad to. This was the second episode of the Epigenetics podcast from Active Motif. Thanks for listening. And I hope you really enjoyed it. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at eurotech at activemotif.com. You can download the podcast also via iTunes. Just look for the Active Motif podcast there or find the subscri subscription button on our website. If you wish to stay current on epigenetics research, please subscribe to our newsletter on the Active Motif website on www.activemotif.com. Thanks for listening and stay tuned. <music>